The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Jack Wilson. Today on the History of Literature, we are pleased to present a special guest episode. This comes from the podcast Overdue, which is hosted by Andrew and Craig. Today, in this episode, they are looking at The Graduate by Charles Webb. Now, you might know the book. It's much more likely that you will know the movie with Dustin Hoffman and directed by Mike Nichols with music by Simon and Garfunkel, who were then at their peak. It is one of my favorite movies. I've probably seen it 20 times. AFI, the American Film Institute, listed The Graduate as number 17 on its list of the greatest American movies of the first 100 years of movies. Number nine on its list of greatest American comedies in that time period, but I like it better than any of the other comedies that are above it on that list. Sometimes movies just hit a sweet spot. Well, The Graduate does that for me. Highly rewatchable and highly recommended. Okay, enough about me, except to say that in spite of my love for The Graduate, I've never read the book. And so we have Andrew and Craig of the Overdue Podcast, which you can find on your podcast app or at overduepodcast.com. It's all one word, Overdue Podcast. These guys are here to deliver the goods and to give you listeners a chance to hear what their podcast is all about. The Graduate, the novella by Charles Webb. What's it like? And is it like the movie at all? I'm looking forward to listening. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. this song sing sing some more after i tell them that welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew i'm actually not gonna sing any more words to the song you guys gotta go look it up but i after every podcast we record i want you all at home to imagine craig and i like <laughs> at the end of the graduate where we turn off the record button and we're really happy for a minute and then our our faces fade to blankness as we consider the magnitude of what we have just done oh wonderful yes <laughs> every we do do that every week every week for honest. like 400 whatever episodes um so if you've never listened before that'll make perfect sense to you one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it ostensibly we might find out why a book is well known 
Sometimes we're just going to find out what we think of the book, and sometimes we find out both. I think we might actually get both of those on this here episode today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you about your experience with the film, Andrew, but first, let me say that this book, The Graduate by Charles Webb, was recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, patreon.com. Uh, CL said, while this may be an odd choice, I'd like to request Charles Webb's novel, The Graduate. As you would assume, this novel is the basis for the 1967 film of the same name. I would assume that. Both followed the same story, almost word for word. In any case, I thought that the abstract dialogue, resonating themes, and one's tendency to compare it to a film of such magnitude might make for an interesting discussion. Uh, The punctuation often infuriated me, and the dialogue became repetitive quite quickly. (laughs) But perhaps one of you has something more eloquent to say about it. And then CL says nice things about our show, which I don't need to repeat. That's on you to be the one who's got something interesting to say about it, I guess, and I'll just be along for the ride. You can have opinions Um, about my opinions. That's how the show works. That's true. It is. I don't actually... So I've seen scenes from the movie. I've never sat down to watch the whole movie of this movie. Interesting. Why Mm. and how have you seen scenes? Like Part of it was... I mean, part of it's just like cultural osmosis. Like I think the thing I just referenced with them getting on the bus at the end of the movie is has been referenced a lot of times anytime anybody is staring into the middle distance while the song hello dark my, hello darkness my old friend plays that's a reference to the graduate sure my- <laughs> um and then yeah just whenever my dad would have like amc on or whatever like i'd catch bits and bobs of of things oh sure um yes. i've seen like the scene with the leg Oh, the like, leg. This is Robinson. Are you trying to seduce me? I saw it. Like, I remember at the beginning where he's like in a pool having ennui. There's a lot of pool ennui. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my only reference, I think, my only like, real reference, I think I probably have like weaker versions of your reference points just from like The Simpsons and stuff or whatever. But I do remember that the end of Wayne's World 2 is like a full on <laughs> parody of the end of The Graduate. Um, complete with him and like some he bars a door with instead of a crucifix he uses a guitar and stuff uh-huh. of course it's I'm not Wayne's looking, World I'm 1 just, oh, I'm just okay Wayne's World 2 1993 so, so, so really topical reference then to The Graduate which came out in 1967 I think at that point it was like one of the it's uh, every Wayne or you know Mike Myers is that who it is um, could presume that most people watching would get it which is sure. not that it was like, oh, let me make fun of the hit film that just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I don't really know anything about it. I think I was I was trying to remember. I think I saw a play adaptation of this in college in a student production that I forgot everything about. Like, okay, the the play has not been reviewed particularly well. And I don't, I don't want to speak ill of anyone I went to college with, but I don't remember the production at all. <laughs> uh, but what can you tell me about Mr. Webb before we get into the book proper? I can tell you that he led a singular life. <laughs> okay. Um, so Charles Webb was born in 1939 and died just this year, June of 2020. Sure. Um, and he was a big advocate of a non-materialist lifestyle. So he was sort of born into money. I know his dad was a doctor, um, but he renounced most of that like throughout his entire life. He like refused his inheritance. He he and his wife sold uh, multiple homes that they owned. Like they were just kind of shedding possessions one by one, and they and that was kind of how they lived their life. Like he sold the film rights to the graduate. Um, the book came out in 1963. He sold the film rights for a flat fee of $20,000, which given the smash hit success of the film is not very much money. Yep. Um, he like gave away a bunch of like Andy Warhol art that they owned. Uh, for a while, he was trying to homeschool his kids, and that literally was illegal at the time, so they were just kind of driving around in a VW microbus, Yeah, which is the ultimate hippie thing. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, He and his wife, Ava, who later went by Fred in reference to a group named Fred, which was targeted at men with low self-esteem, according to 
um, an obituary from the New York Times that I read. Uh, they married in 1962, divorced in 1981, but not because of estrangement. It was to protest the institution of marriage and the fact that same-sex marriage was not uh, legal at the time. And then in 2001, they married. They remarried for immigration purposes. Uh, was... He lived in, I think, Britain. Yeah, they moved to England. Yeah, <laughs> one of them over there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they had two kids, one of whom was a performance artist who reportedly ate a copy of the book with cranberry sauce. Yeah, and then the other son works at a consulting firm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, different. We all rebel against our parents in different ways. Takes some all kinds. Us, some of us eat their greatest work, and some of us reject their rejection of materialism. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, there was uh, there, there's some speculation adamantly denied by all parties, of course, that Fred's mother was the inspiration for Mrs. Robinson, though he has gone on record as saying it was the friend of one of his father's like work colleagues. Yeah, uh, he this is from a piece in The Guardian. I read uh, Mrs. Robinson was an aber- aberrant fantasy of mine that popped out. Um I was at home after college, like the character in the film. My father was a doctor and had couples over to the house to play bridge. There was a wife of one of the doctors who came over, and at the sight of her, my fantasy life became supercharged. I can't imagine what that's a euphemism for. I went to the Pasadena library one day and wrote a short plot outline to get that person out of my system. Uh, My purpose in writing has always been to work things out of me. Later, I got a grant from my college to turn it into a novel. Yeah. That's a reference to it, like a two-year grant that he got, despite being an otherwise mediocre student. Huh. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the book came out in '63. It came out of that encounter with his dad's work friend's wife, I guess, sure. and a, and a two-year grant. Um. It was reviewed in the Times, sort of mediocrely at the time. Um. The reviewer called it, quote, a fictional failure, Whoa! but did think the protagonist was better than Holden Caulfield, which low, low bar there. (laughs) Holden Caulfield sucks. There's some (laughs) Caulfield vibes to this work. If you come at it with that as a reference point, it's doing a lot of different things, but I don't think that's that inherent melancholia and ennui is not a bad place to start. Yeah. Uh, so Webb wrote a total of eight books during his life with a big gap in the like the, the I think the 80s and 90s um, wrote a he, there was a sequel to The Graduate floating around for a while in the 90s called Gwen that was never published. There was another sequel that was published in 2007 called Homeschool that was only published to pay off debt, according to his obituary. Um and yeah, he mostly seems like he's found the, especially the film's success, kind of a distraction. Like he, he thinks it distracts from his, his artistry and his more serious work, which I, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for anybody because I've never written anything that's turned into an international hit <laughs> success film that overshadows everything that I will do for the rest of my life. So I like, I honestly don't know what my relationship to that kind of work would be like, but it does seem like the, the film as adaptations go is pretty straightforward, especially in a lot of its dialogue. And the book lends itself to that. The book Mm -hmm. is, there is um, no internal monologue. There is no like, uh, people do things in the book. But they sure, often, that's a lot of books. But they he like never that. describes like how they're feeling about them while they're doing it. There's all and there's a lot of just pages of dialogue with nothing but quotation marks, just going back and forth like a play almost. So are, not, are you it's not formatted like a play? But it, it right. does feel like one in the sense that like it's very detached. Um, you might get like he he untucks his shirt or he sat down and pulled on the lobe of his ear but you don't get like and he was thinking of right so as a reader are you are you supposed to be reading stuff into into that is it supposed to come off as a like an external sign of these characters like emotional dissatisfaction and detachment like what's how are we supposed to interpret that my read on it is it accomplishes a bunch of different things i i bet for him 
It was, there's an emotional detachment among most of the characters that I think he's going for, but also he that might just be his style. Like he was interested in what they were saying to each other. So it allows you for a certain, to, to like read with an ear towards the subtext of it. Um, and a lot of the book is driven by people kind of talking themselves in and out of circles and then maybe like crying about it and then saying something to get someone to stop crying. <laughs> um, but it, it has an effect for me of really playing into this uh, detached, ennui-laden protagonist, quote-unquote protagonist, I guess. He's the main character anyway. <laughs> Um, and it also makes his eventual love interest, Elaine, a real nothing of a character, which is probably my biggest issue with the book. Uh-huh. Um, and I read a few, I was browsing some like retrospectives on the film and even folks appra- appraisals and reappraisals of the film seem to suggest that Elaine, the, I don't remember who plays her in the movie. Um, oh, I, ha- I had this pulled up. Okay. It's, um, We've got uh, Anne Bancroft, Dustin Hoffman, and Catherine Ross. Catherine Ross the, is Elaine. The film. Um, yeah. Just that that character is also a passive, like, nothing person um, for a lot of viewers. And that is certainly the case in the book, at least for me reading it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's... That's... <laughs> there. There's a lot said when you read about this book about how it sort of predicts some of the, like cultural upheaval of the later 1960s and i'm i guess i'm curious to know how that comes through or like how you feel about that or even what your relationship to other works that depict that or came out of that era Ooh, okay yeah okay um i have a thought about that i think the book so it was written in 63 right it gets made into a movie in 67 Yes. It really feels like it's set in the 50s. Like it feels um it feels like the first season of Mad Men, not the other se- which I know is in 1960, not the yeah, other seasons. The, I mean the the first couple of years of any decade are te- they technically belong to the previous decade. Yeah, and so this book is and it's also very personal. So it like elements of it obviously inspired by the time he saw a friend of his dad's sort of naked, I guess. Um, but you also really didn't have to, <laughs> you really didn't have to have much to get inspired to write a book sometimes. <laughs> um, but also his relationship with, with Elaine and like her family, uh, not Elaine, um, Ava is his wife's name, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, Fred, I, I don't remember. If, yeah. Okay. And, Thank you. Um, yeah. I don't, their relationship did not start with like, her parents approving of them. And I think they, she may have gotten pregnant and, and uh, uh, had an abortion, which her family didn't approve of. And they, they ultimately get together and are married before this book comes out. So there's an element to the autobiographical underpinnings of the story of this like jaded graduates, you know, literally um, mm-hmm. moving into the world and the book is written with him having already gotten the girl. And so there's this like, I don't know, it's really wrapped up in his personal experience, which means it's closed off from, for me, closed off from what you expect a book set in the 60s might be talking about in okay. terms of like it's written before we're going to be start talking about Vietnam. Like we're not talking about the civil rights movement. We're not talking about um that era of the women's movement like the women's rights movement like it just is really wrapped up in a particular uh portrait of a guy doesn't like how his rich family makes him feel Mm -hmm. an older woman who uh doesn't like her lot in life because she has been trapped in a marriage and her wealth kind of traps her from 
and her dependence on her husband's wealth traps her from doing anything and now she's you watching can just, yeah you can just say that she is a, a woman in any era of history in any place yes. on the planet Earth. <laughs> well specific to this moment she is watching her you know she dropped out of college Mrs. Robinson you find this out later in the book Mrs. Robinson um, dropped out of college I think when she got uh, pregnant and then got married and now is watching her daughter go off to college at Berkeley and is like, I'm just going to be stuck here and yeah, the world's like going to pass me by. This is what I might have wanted for myself, but I can't. It's yeah. too late for me now. So and I think that is what makes her a compelling character and, and certainly has made the film version of her character stand out. Um, but it's like, I don't know... Uh, the the it's the version of the mid 20th century novel that is not to me not about the larger political upheavals of that era but is about like i don't know how i feel about what society wants me to be yeah and i put like on a the, whiny voice only yeah. because i feel like it's tropey at this point and i have no idea what it would be like to read this book in the 60s and be like that's me i feel that way well, or, so like what's what's happened in a, like american society at this point like the Post-war, I guess, feel good. Yep, America, rah rah. Period is sort of dissipated. Like the the era of uh, Ike's steady and sort of, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to accurately describe the Eisenhower presidency, but it's not like it is not a period of marked upheaval in American history. Nope, let's say. nope, nope, nope. And this um, book, this book is being like outlined while JFK is getting elected, you know, like, yeah. And it's, and it's like the, the, the boomers are beginning to come into adulthood. Yes. Which that's, that's been fun for all of the rest of us this entire time, <laughs> which I guess is sort of what this is about. Like an, I, I, I guess Benjamin being 21 in 1963 ish. It's not quite a boomer, but it's really close. It's probably like a edge case. Right. What is? I don't know how astrology works. Like rising boomer. He's like an old lost generation. I don't know (laughs) what's the one in between. Is it greatest or is it silent? Oh yeah, the greatest. No, I don't. I don't don't know these anymore. Who was twenty one in nineteen sixty three would would be counted among the greatest generation. No. Well, I don't think he didn't kill any Nazis. That's true. And Benjamin certainly doesn't feel like he's a part of any great generation. He probably Mm -hmm. thinks it's all bogus. Um, Let's get into the book. And we can maybe tease apart some of this other stuff as we unpack how the book works and goes. Um, I put a little poem here at the top of my notes here, Andrew. I said, this is the story all about how a life got flipped, turned upside down. I like to take a minute. Just go on and sit. I'll tell you how our mom slept with a recent graduate. Uh, Benjamin Braddock graduated from a small but prestigious done this. Eastern College. <laughs> <laughs> He's received some sort of teaching prize. Uh, as well as multiple offers to either continue his education at fancy schools or to teach at Eastern colleges, which he says multiple times as a lad in California. And he's simultaneously boasting and being like, those suckers will hire me anywhere because I got job offers at Eastern colleges, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Sorry, I'm still mad about that thing that you did. <laughs> That's OK. I didn't like prepare you for it. I just prepared it uh, for mm-hmm. us. Um and it, the book opens on a party that his parents are throwing for him, a graduation party for him. He's come home from the East Coast. He's at his parents' rich house with his parents' rich friends. I thankfully can't think of an experience as as a young or recent adult where I've had to go to one of these parties growing up. And I don't envy Ben in this instance. I know this, like, this seen as a trope in fiction but i personally mm-hmm. don't have experience with that like painful here's all my parents weird friends that i need to talk to and they won't let yeah, me alone I feel like i've like i don't know like maybe that maybe like an anniversary party or something would be a time where you do that sort of thing as an adult but yeah if we're just like Middle class Andrew and Craig. That's true. Like like everybody calls us when we ride the train <laughs> from Scranton to Philadelphia every day. Every day to work. Every day. Um, it's just yeah, like fancy cotillions or whatever. Is not that's not something we do. No, that's true. We don't have to. We don't have to imp- impress our parents' friends at a party as adults very often. 
thank God. I don't yeah, even know right? what I would do. Mm. Um, and Benjamin hates it also. He doesn't want to leave his room. Um, he doesn't want to give Mr. Robinson a ride in his fancy new car, which his dad keeps telling him to do. And there's just a montage of him trying to leave this party so he can go for a walk. And the the adults keep... that I have experienced <laughs> his the adults keep coming up to him and being like, oh, man, what are you going to do now that you graduated? You were real amazing in school, huh? Uh, one guy walks up to him, grabs his hand, and just says, "How the hell are you?" Which is the most <laughs> like adult talking to waspy. a new adult yeah. wasp thing. <laughs> um, and he gets in a fight with his dad about how this whole party is grotesque, and there are no other people his age. Ben Benjamin goes through this entire book. The only other person of consequence his own age that he interacts with is Elaine, the Elaine Robinson, the daughter of the family. Mm-hmm. There's no other. Um, no other people in his generation that he has any bonds with. And I don't know what that says. I don't know what that accomplishes from Webb's perspective. If it means that Benjamin is like uniquely isolated, is that how Webb thinks everyone in that generation feels? I, I am still thinking about it because I don't have an answer for like why Benjamin is hermetically sealed off from all the people he went to college with. Like, did he become a Holden Caulfield at college and everyone's a phony to him now or what happened? I don't don't think the book properly like what the book is uninterested in explaining that it just is. Um, Sure. And he doesn't like the party. He comes back up to his room and Mrs. Robinson is there. Ooh. And she invites, she asks him for a ride home. I don't believe that she can drive or does not know how. I'm not sure. And she invites him in for a drink. And she puts on some tunes. And she's going real hard with the like, well, you know me. I'm a friend of your parents. Don't you have an opinion of me? I can't do like, I haven't seen the scene. I don't know how Anne Bancroft does it. But, <laughs> uh, and this, I was reading this book. I think I messaged you at the time. Uh, this book gets to the part that, like, if you've ever heard of the movie, is like the beginning. Yeah, real quick. It, yes, that is my memory of the movie as well. Is that that leg in those pantyhose is out like real, real fast? Yes, like there's not a lot of building to it, which I guess it's less of a thing that's built to and more of an inciting action. I, I guess. I guess coming in, I don't think I truly understood that this relationship kicked off the novel in the way that it does. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a thing when characters like this get like kind of have an outsized cultural impact as a, uh, as a kind of a thing that lives beyond just the source text. Um, But she, the, okay. So this is a thing I did watch how Dustin Hoffman delivers the line. uh, You're trying to seduce Mrs. Robinson. You're trying to seduce me. Aren't you? And he does do a very good job with that line. There is a period after you're trying to seduce me and then a beat. And then he goes, aren't you? And it's a very, (laughs) it's very well done because the whole, that whole scene, and it plays this way in the book, he is trying to navigate it, but he doesn't really know what he wants and he doesn't know what she wants. And it's scary to him. She seems to know exactly what she wants. She even Uh says to him, if you won't sleep with me this time, I want you to know you can call me up anytime you want and we'll make some kind of arrangement. <laughs> uh, and Mr. Robinson does come home, doesn't catch them doing anything. Um, and he's like, hey, when my daughter comes home from school, why don't you call her up? She's going to be home in a little bit. That doesn't happen. She stays at summer school. So then he spends his summer. Oh, first, do you remember... Have you ever seen a part of this movie where he gets a diving suit for his birthday and his dad forces him to demonstrate it in the pool in front of everyone? This is this sounds familiar to me now that you mention it. It's yes. embarrassing and awful. It's like a really demented version of that scene in the Christmas story where they make the kid put on the pink bunny suit and he's like crying <laughs> about it. <laughs> Do you just laugh because that's funny to you? <laughs> yeah, no, that's funny. It's funny. It's a funny scene. It's a funny movie. I haven't Bumpus been... Dogs, man. That's a good... every year give them to me. Not a bad movie to be honest. Susanna doesn't love it, but it's because she didn't watch it until like three years ago, and she finds the sort of vignetteness of it mm. sort of off-putting instead of. And there's like kind of a meanness iconic. 
there's a meanness to a lot of those stories on purpose that I think is like a it's a little boy thing. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a trope of a little boy thing. But mm-hmm. there's this really awkward, awful party, and I don't. I maybe it's Benjamin's dad like being mad about the graduation party, but he's like, put on the diving suit and get in the pool and demonstrate it to everybody. And, like, he can't actually get to the bottom of the pool because he's wearing a compression tank. Yeah. And so he's just flopping around in the pool and everyone starts booing and laughing at him. <laughs> and at one point he makes he makes him hold, like, a cinder block and sit on the bottom of the pool. And the chapter just ends with him, like, under the water going, Dad? And the chap- It's really, like, <sighs> what? That's a bit over the top. It is a bit over the top. Um, he's, I am H-O, <laughs> He spends several weeks, and I was kind of surprised that the book didn't show any of this. He goes away for a few weeks, like, bumming on the road, doing odd jobs. He fights a wildfire for some reason. He says he hired some sex workers, but maybe that's not true. Maybe he just says that to make his mom uncomfortable. Unclear. And when he comes back... Uh, his parents are talking to him, and this, man, this line got me. They say, you sound kind of disillusioned about things, which is... <laughs> I have nothing to... <laughs> it's kind of, I don't know, I, I, that was one of the, like, ten moments in the book where I was like, oh, I've been reading books inspired by fiction like this for way longer than I can recall, like... This type of, I guess, what is our version of, like, what's a book or a movie that you can think of that's like, uh, everything, life's not even, like, why would you even do it, man? Like, I don't even know mm. what to do with my, I'm thinking, like, the movie Garden State, but I don't know that I feel good movie about Garden that State's reference. a little like that. I mean, like... I feel like any number of Kevin Smith movies is probably, mm-hmm. you know, the View Askew universe. <laughs> I hate that it's called that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like your your Mallrats is mm, sure is kind of like that. That's a little further back. Like like you and I would have been like nine when that movie came yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, I don't know. Do you have? Did you have something? That in was mind? it was. It was just uh, Garden State, which, again, I don't feel great about as an option. Um, Juno. <laughs> well, because, like, I look back. Little and Miss Sunshine. There's, like, Reality Bites. <laughs> and before that, there's The Breakfast Club a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. But this has, like, a particular. Just, like, movies that sum up the teen experience in a way where you get embarrassed about it when you try to watch <laughs> those movies as an adult. Yeah, a little bit. Sure, a little bit. and also movies where where central characters are really disillusioned with uh, their their current options and what they think the future might hold. Mm, um, the, the Scott Pilgrim movie is that what that's about? I thought it was about yeah. video games. I mean, it's it's about a lot of things. It's mm. very deep work, but <laughs> <laughs> a very rich text. Mostly, it's about a white boy who's kind of sad about some things hey that's what this book's about so checks out perfect comparison Mm -hmm. um he does embark on an affair with mrs robinson because he comes back from his trip he's still bored and sad and he goes to the taft hotel with mrs robinson they start an affair it's really awkward he tries to ask her like maybe we should go to a movie first and she laughs at him and basically coerces him into having sex with him by like being like are you a virgin Oh, you're just a virgin, aren't you? You don't need to be embarrassed. And he's like, stop it. We're going to have an affair right now. (laughs) And that is how that begins. It goes on for a period of time. He has uh, foregone his teaching prize. It's now like the fall and he can't go back to school for that anymore. So he's just like sitting in his parents' house, drinking, laying in the pool, having sex with Mrs. Robinson sometimes, and watching TV, which, like, you know, that's a way sure. to spend some time. Yeah. Uh, he gets in a fight about his da- with his dad about being their ivy-covered status symbol. Again, I don't know that I can identify with the parents treating you like a prize thing, but that does seem to be a very specific feeling that Charles Webb had, I'm trying to, like, I definitely would 
like if Henry were good at something or even even if he were just like doing something, I would be interested in having other people in my life who I love to see that thing. Yeah. So I could be the proud papa, but I wouldn't like make him if he didn't want to or I I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't go out of my way to humiliate him in calling attention to whatever thing it is that he's doing. I would, I would like to think that's true. And I, I believe you will accomplish it. I think we don't know what he will feel is embarrassing. Yeah. But that's a separate issue. Yes. But I don't know. I, I I think I feel pretty confident in saying that if it borders on child abuse, there's not much of a chance that I will. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that that is definitely that I will do it. And the Um, the way it's presented by Benjamin and his understanding is that like his dad is like you you know proving to his friends that he sent his son to this Ivy you know to this really prestigious school and now he's gonna he has qualified for Ivy League graduate school if he wants it and like look uh-huh. at look at how good of a son I made is is basically Benjamin's read on the situation which he feels bad about um, and so he's like whatever I'm just gonna sleep with this lady that you think is a mess. Um, and it builds up to pressure from Mr. Robinson being like, Hey, you should take my daughter out when she comes home. Like that would be a cool thing. She's going to come home for the, for like the winter break or whatever. Like you should really take her out because that would be a good match. Be dope if you did that. And Mrs. Robinson (laughs) is like, don't you talk to her? I will go scorched earth on you. If you, talk to my daughter and take her out on a date mm-hmm. he does take her on a date Uh-oh, andrew what's the worst place you've ever thought to take someone on a date Ooh, i don't um... know that i have an answer to this myself i've been on i've i saw a john cusack movie once that i, I regret I on a date star trek nemesis on a date e. um Okay. When Susanna and I lived in Mount Vernon, well, that's we a saw a lot of bad movies on dates. We saw a lot of but bad But those weren't first dates. dates. No, those were like established. You're like, trapped. The dates. way I feel about you will not be affected by the quality of the movie we're about to watch dates. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. Well, um, there was, I did go on a date where we went to a Chinese buffet and then uh, I locked us out of my car and then. An old lady who had AAA had us sit in her car while we waited for AAA to get there. That's good. Yeah. That that, that, I mean, was, that was a but fun then, but conversation. That was a story, though. Like, yeah. You know. I yeah, know. you got to tell that later. Um, yeah. Like even at the time, I was like, "Dang, this is a story. <laughs> We're living in a story. That's We're cool. Living in a storybook. Yeah." Um, Benjamin takes Elaine to a strip club, like. They go to a cl- they go to one that is, club. That is not a great. Well, that's not a good move. Well, they, I, I would say they <laughs> go to one club and there's dancing and he they start drinking and they get bored and they go to another club that has a strip show. I, maybe there's other things at this club. Unclear. It's not a great first date. They end up getting seated right by the stage. Elaine can't even face the show. She really hates it. The dancer starts spinning her boob tassels in Elaine's face to the point that Elaine starts crying. And that's mm-hmm. when Benjamin's like, yeah, this club, we got to leave. <laughs> we have to leave because I made my girlfriend cry because the stripper put her boobs in her face. Mm. Great first date. Ain't that always, who, whomst among us has not experienced this, you know? Yes. They make up over hamburgers at a drive-in restaurant. Um... It's very unclear to me because we have no access to the characters' inner lives why this is like a successful turning point for them. Um, maybe in the film it's a little like you can pick up on some clues. Yeah. Sure. And then they go to... He, he tries to drop her off her house. She is like, why don't you come in? He's like, no. Uh, she's like, well, let's go to a bar. There's a bar at that hotel. And Benjamin's like, well, okay, let's go. And everyone at the hotel is like treating him like he comes in there all the time because he does with Elaine's mom. And she's like, oh, are you having an affair with someone? And he's like, yes, uh, I am sleeping with a woman. Uh, 
but it's because we were both bored and it, like it's not a big thing. And now you know my secret and you still want to go out on a date tomorrow. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and I think that is the moment when he's like, wow, I love this chick. When she's like, oh, well, I understand that you had a relationship with an older woman um, who was married, but let's go out on a date tomorrow. And also, let's not discuss, let's not have any follow-up questions. None. Please, none. (laughs) Uh, Because the next day, he tries to pick her up for that date, and Mrs. Robinson goes, like, thermonuclear and blows their cover. Uh, Basically says, like, you can't take her out on the date, and he runs up to her bedroom to try to convince her to leave. And Mrs. Robinson comes in and Elaine picks up on the signals and tells Benjamin to get out. Um, Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Here's the weirdest page break that follows that scene, Andrew. For several weeks, Benjamin stayed at home. Sometimes he would go out by the pool and look down on the water, and sometimes he would walk slowly around the block. But usually he sat in his room, staring down at the rug or looking out through the window at some wires he could see running along beside the street on telephone poles. Then after he had been home for nearly a month and Christmas had passed and the new year had started, he decided to marry Elaine. Yep, makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that follows, that tracks. And this is where the movie kind of, not the movie, the book goes off the rails for me a little bit. The he book goes, is like a movie that you, you read. Shove words in your head and understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a movie, but on paper. It's like a stilly. That's what they call them. That's what they and used they, to call they, them. It don't move. It's just printed on the page. Yeah, because, well, the word movie was there, and they were like, well, what do we call this new thing? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, he follows her to Berkeley and goes <laughs> full on like, why did we stop calling them talkies? I really feel like we need to, we still need to distinguish them from the silent films. So ones that move are movies, but ones with sound are talkies. Andrew, there's still. nothing stopping you and me from calling them talkies from here on out. We can't, we can't do that. And I bet we can get some statistically significant portion of our listenership to start calling them talkies. This is how cultural movements are born. That's true. Yeah, just ask Charles Webb. (laughs) (laughs) He he spent his lifetime running from his legacy and we're going to spend our lifetimes running from ours. Running running toward it. Yeah. Yeah, um, (laughs) He follows her to Berkeley and it goes full on like stalker notes from the underground creepo land where he moves into a flat across the street from her like dormitory. He sells his car so he has enough money to pay rent. He doesn't do anything except like sit in his room and walk around sometimes until he finally starts bumping into her. And over a series of like creepy interactions, um, like one, he follows her to get on a bus to the zoo where she's already meeting someone else for a date. Um, And then she is like, listen, we do need to talk. My mother said that you took her up to a hotel room while she was drunk and took advantage of her and then gaslit her into being in an affair with you. And he's like, no, 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 that didn't happen. I did Uh sleep with your mom a bunch, though. And (laughs) and after and she basically is like, so you moved up to Berkeley for me after all this nonsense what am i supposed to do with that which is like a very that's like the most compelling thing about elaine is that she's like i feel responsibility for you because of this terrible situation you've put me in yeah yeah it does cause her to like let him be in her life longer than she probably should uh because she is like well, listen, I can't let you just, I can't just tell you to leave and fear that you're going to like go drink yourself to death in a ditch or something because I, you know, don't want anything to do with you, which is like, she could do that. And I, I would not be upset with her for that choice. Okay. But she doesn't feel like she can do that. And it leaves the door open for more interactions with him that ultimately end up with them like kissing and him saying maybe she'll marry him and she's like maybe hmm. and then speed run to the end the parents <laughs> do get involved um her parents are going to get a divorce 
Uh, his parents threatened to take him to a psychiatrist, which is a real '60s thing, if I've ever heard. In the '60s, that like your life is over if pe- if you're, especially if you're a man, and people found out you had therapy. Like, uh oh. Yeah, his dad comes up and is like, "Well, I'm taking you home. You have an appointment with a psychiatrist." And whoa. he's like, "Whoa, dad, did you bring a straitjacket with you?" It's like, come on. It's, it's now it's like we'll give you we will comp you to do a remote therapy session so that your productivity doesn't suffer. Yeah. We kind of looped around on that one. We did too. We did too good of a job getting rid of the stigma. We should probably add some stigma back. (laughs) Just a little, just maybe a little (laughs) stigma as a treat. treat. Oh my God. It it just has that vibe of like, Oh no, a shrink. The super ego of society is going to eat me. Like it doesn't, it, I was reading this book thinking about um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest a little bit. Oh, not, sure. Not because Ratchet and Mrs. Robinson are similar in, in any like real way. But Beyond I, being like white ladies of a certain age, I guess. Well, I think that they're characters that have become iconic for what they mean in their stories and outside of their stories. Sure, um, okay. And and both of them are also related to like male anxieties about uh about women in that era. Um so I don't know, I just found myself and then that then the the scene where it was like, "Oh no, it's like hydras." I was like, "Oh great, cuckoo's nest, wonderful." Um mm-hmm. and then it gets to the to the super fast wedding scene where Mr. Robinson has made this like shotgun wedding happen with Carl Smith. And lo and behold, the movie scene that you know, uh, where he bursts into the church and he's up on the second floor and then he punches a dude and then they run away and get on a bus. Like, that's just the book, like page for page. Um, I, I just envisioned Wayne doing all of it um, in my head from Wayne's Wayne. world. From Wayne. Okay, yes, sure. Because I don't, you know, I know what Dustin Hoffman looks like, but I have not seen the film, so I don't. <laughs> I mean, you could just, there There are many YouTube clips of the end of that movie. I, I, in fact, watched one to prep for this. Any insights? No, it's <laughs> just, it's pretty much as I remembered it. But what you said at the top of the episode of them, it does end with them getting on a bus. She is technically married at that point. The, I think the ceremony has happened. Um, and they get on the bus and she says, Benjamin, and he says, what? And then like, it's like the bus drives away or something. And that's the end of the book. Yeah. Like in the movie, they don't, they don't speak to each other at all. It's all like. Just looks. It's yeah. It's share. It is both like an occasional one-sided look. Like they don't look at each other directly in that Mm. sequence. And then also everybody on the bus is looking at the weirdos who sprinted on. And one of them's in a wedding dress. Yep. 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 Um, yeah. So the, it was an interesting read. I'm kind of glad I read it. I get. How'd you, yeah. Like how did you, because everybody knows like the stuff about the graduate, right? Like this, this is one of the the big boys of literature, as they call them. <laughs> and <laughs> so, did like, did you feel like it had the? Could you sense why it had the impact that it had, or was it sort of a? Um, what was that book that we read with the uh, librarian? Is in oh the folks? the um. Peyton's place. Peyton place. Yes, Peyton's place. Did, was it? Did you? Did you know why it had been so influential, or or was it a Peyton's place thing where it seems kind of silly in retrospect? It doesn't seem full on silly in retrospect. What actually struck me most about reading it is, and here, what whatever review you said, calling it like fictional farts or whatever he called it, a farce. A fic- <laughs> um, is that make like sure that's right? Or or a, a fictional failure. failure. Okay, failure. sure. I did, I knew it wasn't fictional farts, but you know, um, get out here with your fictional farts. No one would have written that in the New York Times in the sixties. Um, or now, <laughs> first time on New York Times. Um, uh, I get why the movie probably landed with this as source material. The uh, I'm a recent college grad, and I don't know what to do with my parents. And I don't know what to do with this life that feels increasingly preordained based on some choices I made when I was like, or choices that were made for me when I was 17 
and I didn't really know what I wanted anyway. And a bunch of people were like, go here, do this. And I said, yes, mm-hmm. that wrapped up in late sixties kind of burgeoning or already active counterculture stuff. I can, but like in a sanitized romantic comedy way, I can see that really clicking with people. I don't think all of that's in this book. I don't think the book is particularly funny. Um, even though people describe the movie as as a very successful comedy, because like watching him in those scenes with Mrs. Robinson can be comedic um, mm-hmm. or could be pretty comedic. So I think it straddles the generational stuff in an interesting way, as we were talking about before, where like it is it is probably Charles Webb being like, I don't like this about how certain people function. It doesn't really make for me, a lot of broader claims or broader sweeping claims. And I think a lot of books don't hold up to that scrutiny. Like the themes come 10 years after people have been reading the book and talking about it or thinking about the film adaptation or something like that. Okay. Um, I do think, as I said earlier, so let me just read a little bit of an interaction between Benjamin and Mrs. Robinson. This is in kind of their fight where she reveals the some of her backstory. They're kind of arguing about whether or not to go forward with the affair. Um, it's kind of getting heated. He is telling her that she's making him sick with this whole thing. Um, and she said, and this is like back and forth. Did you mean those things you said, Benjamin? You are damn right I did. I am sorry, she said. Well, I am too, but that's the way it is. That's how you feel about me. He nodded. That I'm a sick and disgusting person, she said, looking down at the rug. Benjamin finished tucking in his shirt tails, then looked at her. Now don't start this, he said. What? Don't start acting hurt. Don't you expect me to be a little hurt? And it goes on from there. Like, that's the rhythm of a lot of the dialogue. It's very... I'm not performing it effectively. Yeah, no, no, no. It feels like the kind of... I get a little bit frustrated with dialogue like that, where sometimes I will lose track of who's supposed to be speaking yes. because it's just like blah 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 blah, and it's like it's ping pong or a game of tennis as as played at the Enfield Tennis Academy, just to pick an example. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and it's sometimes the way it's formatted, I think our I think CL our patron mentioned uh, made an allusion to this. Uh, if he does include some like for lack of a better word, stage business, sometimes the next person's line will still be the previous person's person talking, but there wasn't a line. The line breaks get a little wonky. Um, And at its best, it really allows for like a, an undercurrent of like thinking about intonation and thinking about subtext at its worst. As I said, like I have no idea why Elaine is is remotely into this man and like the book has no language to explain that maybe it's because her parents have a terrible relationship and her mom's an alcoholic and so like someone who needs her but isn't her parents is attractive to her there's no text for that in the book i'm applying all of that and i read some forums where people are like trying to figure out why this character might work (laughs) so okay um there's a lot of different anxieties in the book that i think make mrs robinson interesting and so like catching that character and and trying to figure out why she is the way she is um and how she interacts with the other adults or doesn't because it's kind of like it's benjamin it's mrs robinson it's elaine and it's like the the alliance of other crappy adults like the Mm -hmm. world that mrs robinson (laughs) is not a part of nor is benjamin and Elaine, I think, is connected to other people at Berkeley and stuff like that. So it really is like Mrs. Robinson and Benjamin against the world in their own ways, which is a, maybe an explanation for how they find each other. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad I read it because I get where these characters come, come from now. But I certainly don't think that the book was going to become a thing on its own if not for that movie. Sure. That movie that had like this like, big soundtrack that helps you know make simon and garfunkel even more popular it uh, mike nichols's direction is apparently very well regarded in that film and how things are shot and how it's directed and um 
it just become I don't it was released on December 21st of that year which I know is like Oscar season but also like a Christmas movie maybe huh yeah <laughs> it's not a Christmas movie it's like I went and saw Titanic Wait, the weekend of Christmas when Christmas Titanic came movie, out 1967 yeah what came out around the that Christmas kid is a western that came out that year I have never seen a Christmas western huh hmm Bonus episode. <laughs> There's a movie called Fitzwilly. Perfect. A butler helps finance his employer's charitable activities through a variety of illicit schemes, including a plan to rob Gimbel's department store on Christmas Eve. This is on the Wikipedia article, List of Christmas Films. That seems like a prequel to Paul Blart and Robin Gimbel's. Uh, Dick Van Dyke is Fitzwilly, I guess. All right. Any Fitzwilly fans, get at us. Let us know. No, don't. <laughs> get at me, and I'll tell Andrew later. Yeah, get at Craig. Yeah. And he can filter the good stuff. Andrew, just my closing question for you. Um, how do you think the Mrs. Robinson Benjamin thing would play out in the era of social media? How do you what kind of navigations would have to be done? What kind I mean, of inappropriate would mostly... things would get done? Mostly one one of them would have to be on an age-inappropriate social media platform. Ooh. And I don't know if that means, like, Mrs. Robinson is on TikTok <laughs> or if Benjamin is on Facebook. I, I've made or a note, MySpace. Maybe, I made a note but, that there like, might be a lot of inappropriate LinkedIn activity. But she wouldn't have a LinkedIn if she's a if she's a kept woman that way necessarily. No, no, she would probably wouldn't have a LinkedIn. I mean, she might have like an old LinkedIn that she hasn't updated in a long time, and yes. then you see like her husband or daughter or something sees that she's updated her LinkedIn for the first time in a long time. You're like, huh? I didn't think she had any new professional accomplishments. Hmm. Why is she, she trying to get endorsed for? Adultery on LinkedIn. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool skill. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about that, like how this this type of relationship is also now a trope that reverberates back to this film and to this book. So thinking like they made a Jennifer a Jennifer Aniston movie uh, in the wait who's the, who Jennifer Aniston Jennifer Aniston they was the a, sister of Jennifer Aniston. Yes, they made a movie in two thousand five or something. That was like her f- called Rumor Has It. That is apparently the book, The Graduate, and the movie is in the fictional universe of that film. And her mother and grandmother might be the inspiration for the story. That's the plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. That her grandmom is Mrs. Robinson. Make a movie about it. Go. Like that <laughs> seems like the prompt for the money that they spent on that one. Huh. Huh. Rumor Has It that huh. movie exists. Um, I just, I'm trying to think of like a rethinking of the Mrs. Robinson song that's about like sliding into the DMs. Oh, hmm. Yeah, think about that. Think on that. And we'll come one. back to it next time. Yeah, it's and one if, to grow on. And if anybody's gonna read this book, uh, they sound intrigued. Like, think. I guess like a close read of it that might be interesting is like looking at the ways that Webb mentions education and teaching. Um, that certainly is his axe to grind about like what the school system did or didn't do to him and what he thinks he needs to learn in life um, as evidenced by his later text as well. And there's a lot of references to like, well, thanks Mrs. Robinson. You've been really educational for me, but you know what I mean? In the bed. Yeah. In the, the bedroom, the school of heart. Oh no, uh, <laughs> that's it. I got it. <laughs> can't say that well that's all the time we have that's all the time we have here today uh if you want to let us know how you would update this movie for the social media age or update the song mrs robinson uh for the social media age you can hit us up uh at overdue pod at gmail.com or on social media twitter.com and facebook.com slash overdue pod um thanks to becca fadina tabitha lexi eve Kristen, holly dion many more for hitting us up 
Over the course of this past week, Andrew, folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to Apple, Google, the RSS. We're also on Spotify and Stitcher. Subscribe however you want. Rate and review us on iTunes. Well, it's it's not iTunes anymore. It hasn't been called iTunes in several years, which I should be aware of as somebody who writes a 20,000 word review of macOS every year. Yep. Um, but yeah, do rate and review us, whatever it's called, the Apple one. The Apple one. Because it makes us feel good. Um, also, patreon.com slash pod, which Craig mentioned at the top of the show. You can recommend books to us, and they will get added to our queue. It, we do still have a backlog. We'll keep reading them. Yeah, and that's just, you know, honestly, that just encourages you to be a fan for longer. <laughs> just the, the anticipation <laughs> of it. That's a service that we provide you. Uh. Thanks to Nick Lorandis, who composed our theme song. Uh, This week, we will be putting up our December schedule. Check the social feeds, and then it'll get added to the website. It is as follows. Palimpsest by Catherine M. Volante. Mm -hmm. Uh, Never Tell by Selena Montgomery, a.k.a. Stacey Abrams. Uh, the you know from the Georgia elections. From Georgia. From Georgia. Uh, The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Uh, and Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. We will, of course, be doing a bonus episode. Andrew, do you want to read the title of our... Do you remember the title of our bonus episode? Twas the Knife Before Christmas. Yeah, by Jacqueline Frost. I can't wait to share that with everyone. Um, uh, can, I get, can I just tease Palimpsest for you for just a real quick... Please, why not? It's next week's episode, yeah. Palimpsest, uh-huh. where two people meet on a train and... They both love trains so much, and one guy has written a book about trains, and they get so horny about trains on the train that they have sex on the train. Yes! So I don't know what that's about. I'm into it. it is, it's a strong first chapter. Gotta I'll come say. back next week! <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.